If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, to chapter 65, which is all about the second coming of the Lord. And we're starting at verse 10. And it's describing the characteristics of the Messianic kingdom and just how beautiful it will be. And in verse 10 it says, Sharon shall be a fold of flocks. That's not Sharon, it's in a girl's name. Sharon is a valley in Israel. It's a valley outside Tel Aviv that is so beautiful today. But 150 years ago it was just barren wilderness. So Sharon will be a fold of flocks, meaning it's going to be so green, so lush, that it'll be a place for sheep and goats to dwell. And the valley of Achor, Achor means something like total desolation. The valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down, talking about herds of cattle. So we're talking about it being green and lush like the mountains to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee called the Bashan, which is known for what? Fat cows being a good place to raise herds and yeah. So the places that were wasteland and desolate shall be lush and green and good for raising cattle, sheep, and goats. And then there's a four. Anytime there's a four, we need to stop and go, what is the limitation? For my people who have sought me. Is everyone invited into the messianic kingdom? The answer is no. So this is telling us who will be in the kingdom to enjoy such lush bounty and beauty. That's going to be for my people who have sought me. What does that mean, who have sought me? Let's start back in Deuteronomy. God bless you. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4 verse 29 describes the characteristics that God calls those who have sought me. Does it mean a casual glance around to see if there may be a God somewhere? No. What's that? Diligently. That's the key. Verse 29 says, but from there, for those of you who are just grabbing your Bibles, it's Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if. What does if mean? Here's the condition. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. So who's going to be in the kingdom? Those who casually said maybe there's a God out there somewhere who cares? No. Those who seek him with their whole heart, their desire is to know God, to be in his presence, to be his child. And it says in verse 30, when you're in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, in the end of days. That's what's happening. When you turn to the Lord your God and what? Obey his voice. Shema so that helps to define what he means by if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Are you willing to follow the Lord's commandments or is that going too far in your book? I remember in my younger days being accused of being a Jesus freak. I, I said, what do you mean? 
And the person said, well, you go to church on occasion, don't you? And I said, that's what it takes? <laughs> I wish that's what it takes. No, no, no. We must be zealous for the Lord our God. And then carrying on from there, let's go to First Chronicles 16. First Chronicles 16. First Chronicles chapter 16. Verses 10 to 11. When we seek the Lord, is that just a one-time thing? And then we're good? Look at 1 Chronicles 16, verses 10 to 11. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face. What? Evermore. Meaning what? And never stop. Don't stop seeking the Lord's face until you are standing in his presence in the kingdom. And then just praise his holy name to his face. How beautiful that's going to be. Same book, 1 Chronicles chapter, probably 22. I have a red one. Let me check it while you're turning Hmm. Okay, 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 19. Now set your heart and your soul, which means your very life, to seek the Lord your God. Therefore arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God. To bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house, it is to be built for the name of the Lord. One thing I've heard a lot this past week is there's never going to be another temple. What does the Bible say? There's absolutely going to be another temple. What's that, Daniel? He's going to set his feet in the temple on the temple mount. So why would people teach that there's not going to be another temple? You put forth the doctrine of preterism mean, oh, all that's just history. There is nothing yet to be fulfilled. This is the kingdom of God. This is where there's peace, love, and harmony. There's no war. There's no sin. We all just love each other. Now look at me like I'm out of my mind. Yeah, that's the way I look at those guys before I turn the channel. <laughs> Right, according to them. According to them. And the reason things are as bad as they are is because we as believers have not been doing our jobs to get people to come into the kingdom. Okay. So that's why. It's our failure. Yeah, Got that's it. That's why things are as bad as they are. I understand. So go to Acts chapter 15. Can you hear me? Can I hear you? Barely. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. And what was the name um, of this? I think some people Preterous. say that we are the temple, and that's why they say there's not going to be a temple because we are the temple. 
Yeah, but if you read Ezekiel 40 through 48, which they have to respond to, they say, well, you can't take that literally. That's just symbolic. Yeah, go read it and see how literal it really is. Yeah, exactly. Acts chapter 15, verse 7. And when there had been much dispute, the dispute is whether we're saved by faith or by circumcision. The Jewish doctrine was you're saved by circumcision. Is that true? Nah, never was. It says, after there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago, talking about Acts chapter 10, God chose among us that by my word, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. What's my point here? To seek the Lord, that's not just a call to Israel. That's a call to all people. All people. In Acts chapter 17... Verses 26 to 28. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 to 28. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in all the face of the earth. What does that mean from one blood? From Adam, we all descend from Adam who sinned in the Garden of Eden. Reborn through the blood of Messiah, true. And it's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That means God decides when nations rise and when nations fall. What's the best example of that from Daniel chapter 2? Do you remember a great idolatrous image with a head of gold? Chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, and two legs of iron with ten toes of iron mixed with clay. That was Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. How could God tell us before the Babylon Empire ever falls that it's going to fall to the Medes and Persians, specifically to Cyrus? Because he was the one who predetermined this is where you're going to fall and that's it. And in Daniel chapter 5, when he wrote on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tikla, Upharsin, Babylon fell when? That very night. Verse 27, so they should seek the Lord. Who should seek the Lord? Everybody, all nations. In the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. What does it mean to grope for him? Even in darkness, to grope is to try and find something, to seek it, to grab hold of it. Because you know it's there. It just has to be. Now, turn back to Isaiah chapter 65 to verse 11. And let the dart start to fly. Verse 11, but you are those who forsake the Lord. These people are those who claim that they're seeking the Lord. But instead, God says they are forsaking the Lord. Isaiah 65 verse 11. 
but you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain. My holy mountain is referring to what? To Mount Sinai, when God gave the commandments, and to the temple mount on which the temple stood. A mountain also represents the kingdom. All three are in play here. Who prepare a table for Gad and who furnish a drink offering for Mani. My Bible, as many of yours, has a little footnote that these are pagan deities. But a lot of people just read over this. Okay, there was somebody called Gad, somebody called Mani, somebody worshipped them somewhere. But this is an end times prophecy. It's not talking history. Who in the world today worships Gad and Mani? Who even knows who they are anymore? But their pagan ceremonies continue. And that's the problem. That's what God wants us to understand. The celebration of Gad and Mani was called the Saturnalia until the Catholic Church changed its name to Christmas. That is the celebration of Gadamini. Let me bring in some references. The Pictorial Bible Dictionary with Topical Index. Published in 1975, page 163, says this about Christmas. Quote, some Christian bodies disapprove of the festival. Many customs of pagan origin have become part of Christmas, such as the Christmas tree. But most of these no longer have a heathen connotation, but have acquired a, a Christian meaning, that is, the Christmas tree points upward to God and reminds us of his gifts. What the dictionary is trying to tell us when it says many customs of pagan origin have become part of the celebration means that we have engaged excuse me, in what's called syncretism. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. Syncretism. Syncretism is taking that which had a pagan use and purpose and repurposing it for the worship of God. Like the Christmas tree, you read all about the Christmas tree all over the Bible. It's called the every green tree under which they held the pagan ceremonies. We're going to look at those scriptures. Yes? So for all these years, the, 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 the verse that says, don't worship me like the pagans do. So for all these years, the verse that says, don't worship me as the pagans do, we're just about to turn to those, believe it or not. Sorry. So let's do that. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy 12. How do they write that off? How do they write that off? They say, well, that's Old Testament. Ah. It's also in Jeremiah, correct? It's also in Jeremiah 10, yep. But let's go to Deuteronomy, because Deuteronomy is spot on. Because it says, syncretism, don't do it. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Starting in verse 1. He tells us more than once in Deuteronomy, do not take that which is pagan and use it to worship the Lord our God. Don't do it. Deuteronomy 12.1, these are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. What does that mean? Forever. 
You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Those evergreen trees are what got cut down and brought into the house to be made into what's called today Christmas trees, or my Jewish buddies, when they grew up, they called them Hanukkah bushes. <laughs> Didn't make it any better to call it a Hanukkah bush than a Christmas tree, I assure you. Verse 3, and you shall destroy their altars, burn their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Is that fairly clear? Mm -hmm. If it's not, he tells us again in the same chapter. So we'll start in verse 28. Verse 28, Deuteronomy 12, 28. It says, Observe and obey all these words which I command you. Then may go well with you and your children after you. What's that next word? Forever. When you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess. And you displace them and dwell in their land. Take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they're destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods saying, how do these nations serve their gods? I will also do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Meaning don't learn the way they worship their gods and use them to worship me. It says, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they've done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. So God says, don't do it. So what did this Christian Bible dictionary say? Some Christian bodies disapprove of the festival. Many customs of pagan origin have become part of Christmas, such as the Christmas tree, but most of these no longer have a heathen connotation. What they should say is a heathen connotation to me. The problem is, what does God know? God knows that these were used to worship the pagan gods, specifically Baal and Ishtar. Yes, Daniel? Yes, in verse 28 it says, in the sight of the Lord your God. Meaning what? It matters what it means to God. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 12. He was talking specifically about verse 28. Let's use a hypothetical example. Never happened. Strictly hypothetical. Daniel has an affair. And when Candy finds out, he apologizes, she forgives him. But he says, but now let's put over our bed her picture. And whenever I look at it, I'll only think of you. And Candy says, what? <laughs> Don't go to sleep at night, right? Don't close your eyes. Well, this is what we're doing to God. The things that were used in pagan worship, the things that God calls adultery to him, we keep around to celebrate him, to remind him always. Look at how we used to 
and do all these things with these pagan idols. Ha ha. Just live with it. And I think that's why they came out with the movie The Grinch Stole Christmas. I don't know if you ever watched that, but it was about taking Christmas away. And it pertains to this because we're not supposed to be celebrating Christmas. And yeah. there's going to come a time where we are telling people not to celebrate Christmas and they're looking at us like we're weird. You know, like, what, what are you talking about? It's, been, it's Christmas. True, true. It's the birth of Messiah. No, he no, was born not. in the fall. That's yeah. right. Now, let me read you an article called Christmas by Sidney Davis. Probably no relationship. It says that Christmas was originally a pagan festival is beyond all doubt. It was the celebration of Gad and Mini. The time of the year and the traditional ceremonies connected with this celebration prove its origin. Far and wide in the realms of paganism was this festival observed. In the pagan religions of the Persians, Arabians, and the Oriental East was celebrated the birthday of the Lord Moon on the 24th of December. His name was known as Mani. M-E-N-I as in Gad and Mani from Isaiah chapter 65. That he was revered as a masculine deity is where we get the idea, the man of the moon from. Ever grow up hearing about the man in the moon? Yeah, that was from the celebration of Mani. Says this celebration was connected to Mithraism. Mithraism is the worship of the invincible sun, and that was the religion of Constantine. I'm sorry, let me go back to reading. I keep throwing in comments. This celebration was connected to Mithraism, which was the official pagan religion of the Roman Empire under Constantine. The two Mithraic sacred days were Sunday, called the Venerable Day of the Sun, as Constantine, Constantine called it in his Edict of 321, and also December 25th, quote, Dies Natalis Solis, unquote, or the birthday of the sun. Thus, the two celebrated deities of Mithra and Mani were celebrated on the very days that Christians called Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Mithra was worshipped as guardian of arms, which is interesting, because the false messiah worships what? A god of war, weapons. And patron of soldiers and armies. It may be of interest for you to know that the handshake was developed by those who worshipped him as a token of friendship and as a gesture to show that you were unarmed. When Mithras later became the Roman god of contracts, the handshake gesture was imported throughout the Mediterranean and Europe by Roman soldiers. In fact, if truth be known, the holiday of Christmas has always been more pagan than Christian, with its associations of Nordic divination, Celtic fertility rites. Why do you kiss under the mistletoe, does anybody know? Because the mistletoe would cause abortions. Yeah, mm-hmm and Roman Mithraism. That is why both Martin Luther and John Calvin abhorred it, and why the Puritans of New England refused to acknowledge it, much less to celebrate it. To them, no day of the year could be more holy than the Sabbath, and by that they don't mean Sunday. And why it was even made illegal in Boston. The holiday was already too closely associated with the birth of the older pagan gods and heroes. And many of them, like Oedipus, Theseus, Hercules, Perseus, Jason, 
Dionysus, Apollo, Mithra, Horus, and even Arthur possessed a narrative of birth, death, and resurrection that was uncomfortably close to that of Yeshua. And to make matters worse, many of them predated the Christian Savior. So listed below in alphabetical order, just in case you're interested, are 15 pagan goddesses and gods whose birthday was celebrated on December 25th before Messiah was ever born. There are probably more. So several of these ancient deities have life events in common with those attributed to Yeshua, such as a virgin birth, an attempt on their life, formation of a group of 12 disciples, death, visiting the underworld, resurrection, etc. So here's the list. Apollo, a Greek god, he was believed to be the son of Zeus and Leto. Attis, which is A-T-T-I-S, originally a Phrygian god of vegetation. Baal, the chief god of the Canaanites and Phoenicians, he was believed to be the child of El and Asherah. Bacchus, the Roman god associated with wine and ecstasy, he was equivalent to the Greek god Dionysus. Next one is Dionysus, the Greek god of the grape harvest, wine making and wine, ritual madness and ecstasy. Next is Helios, H-E-L-I-O-S, the personification of the sun in Greek mythology, also known as Hyperion or Hyperionides. Next is Hercules. How many of you ever watched the adventures of Hercules and all those cartoons? Yeah, he's a bad guy. A Greek god. He was believed to be the son of Zeus and was known for his strength and sometimes portrayed as a muscle-bound buffoon in Greek comedies. But all these were celebrated for their birth on December 25th. And then you've got Horus, who was considered to be the son of two major Egyptian deities, the god Osiris and the goddess Isis. Then Jupiter, the supreme Roman god, was copied from Zeus in Greek mythology. Then Mithra, from which we get Mithraism, which was the religion of Constantine. An Indian deity mentioned in the Indian Vedas holy books, which were written about 1400 before Messiah was born. He later became a Persian god. In common with Yeshua, he was born in a cave, described as the way, the truth, the light, the life, the word, the son of God, and the good shepherd. He often referred to, he was often referred to as a lamb and was believed to be a mediator between God and humanity. He was perceived as the light and power behind the sun. The sacred rock of Mithraism was named Petra. They say, which is Peter in Greek, it's not, it's the feminine form for Peter. The name of Yeshua's main disciple, Mithra was born of a virgin and had 12 disciples. Any idea why Constantine would confuse Mithra with Yeshua? Yeah. Then Nimrod was a child god in the ancient Babylonian religion. He was believed to be either the wife or the son of Ceramus. Perhaps both. They mean the husband or the son. Osiris was the ancient god of the dead, resurrection, and fertility. Perseus was a Greek god, the son of Zeus and Diana, and the wife of Andromeda. Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, was the Roman sun god and principal deity of the city of Rome. 
Worship of Sol Invictus was established by the Roman Emperor Aurelian in 274 Common Era. The faith group survived until at least the 5th century because St. Augustine preached against them at that time. The Romans celebrate a festival of the Dix Natalis Solus Invicti, which is the birthday of the unconquered son, on December 25th. Tammuz, yeah, you get it. But So what do they do when they take Messiah who was born in the fall at the Feast of Tabernacles and assign to him the birthday of December 25th? What are they saying? That he is a pagan god. That he is the incarnation of these pagan gods of pagan peoples. How do you realize he was not? I thought so. So, enough of that. Let us go back to Isaiah chapter 65. That was first 11. Whoops, I got two red letters out here. Two red numbers. Can you send us this summary? Of course. Yep. Yeah, I will send both of those articles. I've got them set aside right here to do just that. So Wayne, yes, Wayne, why do you think December 25th was... Why did they pick that? Why did they pick December 25th? Because that is the shortest day of the year, and the year is about to start getting longer and longer, so they say that the sun has been dying up to that point and then is reborn. So all of these gods... Are all related to sun god worship. All of them. And if you turn to Malachi, you're going to see a verse that really caught Constantine's eye, I'm sure of it. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. See how son is spelled? S-U-N. Constantine said, aha, this new Jesus is nothing more than the sun god under another name. So in, in, when he said we can't keep any of the festivals that the Jews celebrated even though God gave them, he substituted sun god worship holidays like Sunday and Easter and Christmas, etc., for the things that God commanded. The, the son of righteousness, S-U-N. It really is S-U-N. Yes, but was that ever applied to Yeshua in any, or to the Lord in any other place? Yes, when the woman with the issue of blood crawls through the crowd and grabs the hem of his robe, She's grabbing the seat, which are tied at the kanaf. When it says healing in his wings, that's why she grabs this. She says, you are that one. In Malachi 4.2, what does he say? Woman, your faith has made you whole. Her faith that he was that promised one. So yeah. Now there's been all kinds of debate over the last 2,000 years of why God used the word son, S-U-N, but he did. It's the Hebrew word what? Shemesh. Shemesh. Okay, back to Isaiah 65. And, and Brother Wayne, one other verse that you quoted before is Exodus 23, 13, not even make the mention of uh, other gods. Yeah. Correct. So back to Isaiah 65, verse 11. Verse 11. 
But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for gathering and furnish a drink offering for my knee. First time I read this and realized that they're talking about December 25th, it's in a shiver up my spine. Because I grew up at home putting up Christmas trees and stuff and thought we're supposed to do that. Then I read this and said, oh, no, we're not. Isaiah 65, verse 11. Oh, okay. Now, verse 12, therefore, that's why we got to read this, because there's a therefore. Therefore means here's the consequences of doing this. Therefore, I will number you for the sword. Does that mean to award us a gold sword as a prize? No, it means to die. And remember, we're talking about the second coming of the Lord. So this is not something ancient. And you shall all bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes. Meaning what? You would not turn away from the pagan roots and worship me. So, of course, the modern Christian church has, has got the best of both worlds. They just use the pagan things to worship God. But what did God say? Don't do it. And he said, if you do want, I will number you for the sword. That's not a good thing. Because, verse 12 says, when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Where is the verse that says, if you turn away your ear from hearing the law, the Torah, even your prayer is an abomination? Proverbs 28, verse 9. Let's go look at Proverbs 28, verse 9. Now, is the, sword, the sword is judgment, correct? Yep. And it's talking about death. Bow down to the slaughter. Okay. Could it be talking about like plagues too? Like I will bring, or is it? Oh, like, sure. Okay. Okay. Talking about dying. Right. Most of us look for eternal life, not to die. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9. Before you read verse 9, read verse 7. Whoever keeps the law is a discerning son. Verse 9, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, that word is Torah in Hebrew, even his prayer is an abomination. So back to Isaiah 65, we're up to verse 13. Therefore, oh, there's another therefore, means here's another application because this is all true. Behold, my servants shall eat but you shall be hungry. Notice we're setting up another set of two hands. You've got God's servants, and you've got those that are not God's servants. Who gets to eat? My servants. But you, those who forsake the holy mountain of the Lord to chase after things from pagan idolatry of the past, you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink 
but you shall be thirsty. Let me see what this red one is out here. <laughs> yeah. Back on verse 11, somebody put a comment. Is that kind of like setting out uh, cookies and milk? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Okay. Back to verse 13. Two, for, two lines from the end. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. So all throughout this verse, what does it mean to be a servant? Servant's one who obeys the master, one who obeys the Lord. Which of these hands do you want to be on? This is just like Deuteronomy 30 where Moses said, I said before you today, life and death. Choose life. Verse 14, behold, which means shut up and listen. But how many times do we see behold in verse 13? Three times in verse 13. Now again in verse 14. Do you think God's trying to get us to listen? Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart. Does that remind you of Revelation chapter 5? It does me. So let's go look at Revelation 5. Who is singing? My servants. How is the group described in Revelation 5 verse 9? And they sang a new song saying, what does that word saying mean in Hebrew? It's a quote. So what was the original language to Revelation? Hebrew. You, Messiah, Yeshua, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. When was Messiah slain? At the crucifixion. And have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Where are these saints singing? They're in heaven before the throne of God. When does the first seal open and the tribulation period begins? Chapter 6 verse 1. So where are the saints raptured and resurrected before the first seal is opened? Before the throne of God in heaven. So is the rapture pre-trib or post-trib? It's pre-trib. I've asked many of my post-trib brothers, who are these singing in verse 9? And their answer is, I have no idea. Are they angels? No, they've been redeemed by God. Angels aren't redeemed. Maybe they're all Jews. No, it says out of every tribe and tongue and people and nations. So where do they come from? And their answer simply is, I have no idea. You know who it is? You're sitting here. You're sitting here. Okay, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 65. I see a red one out there. Let me check it. Yep, in Matthew chapter 5, it talks about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. It does parallel, that's correct. So Isaiah 65, verse 14, Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart. 
Why do my servants sing for joy, but you cry for sorrow of heart? Because they thought they were serving God. Oh my goodness, we're talking about those in Matthew 7 that say, but Lord, Lord. He says, depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. But you know what King James says? You who practice iniquity. And I tell you what, having grown up with the King James Bible, I never knew what that meant. And now I know it means lawlessness. Hmm. Verse 15, wait a minute, I didn't finish 14. And wail for grief of spirit. What's the difference between crying and wailing? Wailing like uncontrollable, far beyond crying. Something that Sea of the Grace never does. She's so quiet and all, but uh, go over and pinch her real good and she'll wail, all right? Okay. Verse 16, so that... Oh, I missed 15. 15. Oops. Hang on, hang on. Don't get ahead of yourself. We have more to talk about my servants. Oh, my. I can't get so far ahead. My servants versus you. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. Okay. Let's go back on 14. 13 and 14, yep. Yep, 13 and 14. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 19. Verses 15 to 19. What then? Shall we sin? What is sin? Lawlessness. That's 1 John 3, 4. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? If under law here meant the law applies, then this sentence would be an oxymoron. Because you can't sin and violate the law if the law doesn't apply. So we know that under law doesn't mean that the law applies. So what this should read, let me just throw it out there. What then? Shall we sin because we're not saved by works of the law, but we're saved by grace? The answer? Mejonoito in Greek? Certainly not. In New King James, and the King James is God forbid. And in my own translation, it's no way, Jose. We've got another one out there. All right. It goes on to say in verse 16, Do you not know? That to whom you present yourselves slaves or servants to obey. In Hebrew it's the same word. It's evid. Slave or servant. So to whom you present yourselves servants to obey. You are that one's servants whom you obey. Whether of sin leading to death. Or of obedience leading to righteousness. But Paul's writing to believers. He says if you continue in the road of sin. Where is it leading you? To the lake of fire. Not to eternal life. If you want eternal life, which road should you be walking? Obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were servants of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And have become set free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. 
I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. He just called them dumb again. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, that's before you got saved. So now, now that you've been saved, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Righteousness and lawlessness are opposites. Paul says, now that you have been saved, you cannot continue to walk in sin and think you're on the road to heaven. Simply does not work that way. In Isaiah, in 65, let's go back to verse 9. God made a comparison between his servants and others. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, says Isaiah 65, 9. And from Judah, an heir of my mountains, my elect shall inherit it, and, what, and my servants shall dwell there. We looked last night at Isaiah 56. Those from the non-Jewish world that want to enter the kingdom will do what? Will keep the Sabbath and obey the commandments. Keep the covenant. Let's go to Revelation 2, which is written to one of the seven churches. To people who call themselves believers. And see how Messiah refers to them. Revelation chapter 2 verse 20. Revelation 2 verse 20. Nevertheless, <clears throat> I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants. Underline that, my servants. To commit sexual immorality and eat things strangled. I'm sorry, eat things sacrificed to idols. So she's coming to people who have committed their lives to the Lord. And said, oh, you've made an error. You forgot that when Messiah was crucified, the commandments were nailed to the cross. And now you're free to enjoy all the sexual pleasures of life. To commit sexual immorality, things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, but listen to this. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So he's talking about people that he calls my servants that have been led astray into sin and says if they do not repent, then what? They're not his servants any longer. They will not be under his protection any longer. But they will be cast into great tribulation. Now, could that mean in this life as well? Yeah. Because I've seen a lot of people that are always bed bound. They just can't get up. They're always yeah. in bed. So that's what... It certainly could be, absolutely. Okay. The point, what's that? Not always. 
No, not always. She said, could it be? Yeah. There are all kinds of things that happen in life. But what's my point? They were his servants, but they turned away. So you can turn away unless they repent. They have an opportunity to repent, but what if they refuse? What if they say no? My pastor says it's okay. What does Andy Stanley say? Murder is no longer a sin because the commandments have been done away with. Therefore, rape, robbery, murder, not sins. Now, God may not think it's the best thing in the world, but it's not sin. What does God say? He says, repent. Repent. Carrying on to verse 14 in Isaiah 65. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. Let's go to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Verses 1 through 3. Psalm 33. Verses 1 through 3. It says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you who? Righteous. If you are not righteous before God, you ought not to be rejoicing. You should be in fear. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. That new song is in Revelation 5.9. So the righteous are the ones that are in heaven, having been raptured and resurrected, that are singing the new song. And play skillfully with a shout of joy. What's a shout of joy? That's a teruah. As in Yom Teruah, the day of the awakening trumpet blast, that some people today call Rosh Hashanah. Go to Psalm 40, verse 3. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Does God like our praise? Does God like our singing beautiful songs to him? Yes, indeed he does. Psalm 96, verse 1. Who does God want to be singing these new songs? Psalm 96 one says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord who? All the earth. That's what God wants. God wants salvation to go across every nation and all people to join together into singing praises to his name. 
In fact, that's what verse 2 says. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Yep, the rapture is in chapter 4. The new song is in chapter 5. The tribulation period begins in chapter 6. Wayne? Yes, ma'am? Could you go through, I think it's 95, verse uh, 7 through 9. Yep. Every time I heard that scripture quoted in a church, it was right before the offering was taken up. Can you explain how that got so severely off course, please? Well, I wasn't there, but let's read. Psalm 95, verses 7 to 9. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Which means what? We follow him where he goes, on the path where he leads. It was John 10 that said we're to be one flock with one shepherd, following one shepherd on one path, Jew and Gentile, one and Messiah. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's quoted uh, over and over again in the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. Yes, sir. She said 95, didn't she? That's 96, not 95. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at my Bible. Okay. Psalm 96. Let's try that one. <laughs> Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. That word give isn't actually give, right? It's ascribe. Ascribe to the Lord, which means to, to acknowledge his qualities. That he is full of glory and full of strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Glorious honor. Bring an offering and come into his courts. The church is not his courts. It's to bring an offering into the holy temple. Um, but that's because let's go back to Malachi or is it Micah let me see yeah it's Malachi right before Matthew go to Malachi the church has hijacked some scriptures out of Malachi in a replacement theology kind of way Never in the scriptures is a tithe money. It's an increase in agricultural products. But in Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, 
you hear a lot of preaching on Malachi chapter 3 verse 8 right before the offering plate passes. It says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. And I've had Baptist pastors stand up front and say, I got from the IRS all of your tax statements for last year so I know exactly what each of you made. And I multiplied it by 10% to see what you owed me. And I didn't receive that much in offering, so you have robbed God. Yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Is that talking about money? It's not. God has streets of gold in the New Jerusalem. He doesn't need your money. It says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. The storehouse is a room in the temple where they stored the food for the Levites and the priests. Levites and priests can't raise cattle and things to feed their families. So how do they serve God day and night and yet feed the families? They have to rely on the tithes. So bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. You don't eat gold and silver, right? That there may be food in my house. Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. So it's an end times prophecy too. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven, that's the rain, and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it, meaning there won't be room enough in your barns at home to store all the food. If you will just bring the tithe to the storehouse in the temple so that the priests and the Levites can do their services before the Lord. Has we, not... Yes, Edmund? I, I often find it frustrating. I think we Brits have less excuse to make that mistake in the church because um, there are uh, tithe barns still in existence here. We have one just a couple of miles from here. Medieval tithe barn where all the uh, produce would be put, it was never to do with, you know, they knew back in medieval times what a tithe was. Right. It, it frustrates me when people will talk about uh, this restored tithe barn, which is, you know, just a few miles outside the city. Now everybody knows about it, and they'll talk about it, but they don't connect it to their mixed-up teaching from the pulpit. Yeah. If you go to our website under topics, you'll find one on tithing, where I go through every scripture on tithing and all the history. And even within the church until the Middle Ages, the tithe was always food. In the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church said, how are we going to raise the money to build all these huge cathedrals across Europe? And they said... I someone yesterday that coins as such that we're so used to don't appear until 800 BC, and that's after all the writings of Moses. That's a good point to make. Thank you, Edmund. Go to Psalm 140. Can I just, can I just put in um, a thought? Yeah. If, or maybe you can answer this, if the preachers or teachers or prophets or whatever are supposed to be doing this for the Lord, <clears throat> how would they sustain themselves? Would they be 
asking for money or be asking for food? Or should they be asking for anything? If they're asking for money, it should be an offering. An offering is voluntary. You give what you want to give. When you call it a tithe, you make it mandatory and a sin not to do it. Yes? Good. So I struggle with this because the way that it, it has been explained to me is that the tie that once was agriculture um, now is turned into money because our work is in the office and not in the field so much anymore. And so there's way more and that our first fruit should be the top of our crop would be our paycheck and we're giving the money from our our earnings so that we can pay the rabbi salary and the youth ministry ladies with that salary and like how so god's commandments should evolve over time to fit society you're right the way you say it that way it makes <laughs> sense yeah god doesn't change I think you're making sense. I'm just confused. Like, if the time How can a megachurch pastor afford all those jet airplanes if the people... Well, I don't want to be bitter about it. No, I don't either. Good, you know, leaders, that this is paying for the rent or whatever the situation is. In a, there's a difference in the large mega places and the smaller places that are a little bit more... I mean, should we be giving... Should we be bringing you our our herbs that we grow in our garden? Like, and if we do grow agriculture, if we start growing food in our you garden, you can only take the tithe to the temple in Jerusalem, according to Deuteronomy 12. You can't bring the tithe here. Let's go and look at Deuteronomy 12. Anything you bring here is simply an offering. No, it's a matter of voluntary versus mandatory. Deuteronomy 12. I don't have any problem with voluntary offerings. People are welcome to give and help support ministries as they want to. It's when the pastors get up there and demand it. You're sinning because you didn't give me enough money. Money like that, they have no faith because they're not letting God take care of them. I don't, I don't judge, you know. Deuteronomy 12. Wayne? Yes, I'm. Wayne? I'm here. Uh, yes, I believe you really uh, uh, honed in on that for me. Voluntary versus mandatory. And a person. Uh, like the, I, the was just uh, talking, that is a, a real good question for the days that we live in. So that brings into great accountability the people that we put ourselves under, the, their authority, and to really know wh where their heart is, that, that we give our... Uh, offerings to or our tithe but to we're placing that under their authority to use it 
according to the, the will of the Father and according to the scriptures, and it behooves all of us to know what that level of integrity is, uh, financial integrity, um, with each, you know, where we get fed, so to speak. Gotcha. So let's go to Deuteronomy 12 and complete that understanding. We read through verse 4. Verse 4 was, you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. The next word is but. Whether it should be or not. Well, that's another issue. You shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. Where is that? That's Jerusalem. And there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, etc. Why don't we set up an altar in Jasper and do animal sacrifices? Because you can only do sacrifices where? At the temple in Jerusalem. The same place, it says, is where you, the only place you can take your tithe. Okay, I have a follow-up question. Okay. Can we glean from someone who's... Like if, if the rabbi at the place that everything seems really great and up and up, a messianic kind of place, but they're hounding you for tithes, do you say, well, this place is no good because they got that wrong and you walk away and you don't ever listen to nothing? I don't know of such a place, so let's just leave that in the theoretical realm. Well, let's leave it in the theoretical. That, that's fine. I mean, I know a place, but I'm... Like, uh, when I go to a, play, a new place, or I listen to a new teacher on gotcha. YouTube, or they, they talk about a lot of things that coincide and connect, but then they're Sunday worshipers, though, or they got, they got something a little wrong. Can we glean from that? you got to be able to eat the meat and spit out the bones. So it's or like, my expression is be a filter and not a sponge. Right. Same thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Just one more thing. Yes, I'm. Can I just add this? Because it just came across my brain. <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira. Yes. They were told, "Go, uh, weren't you? Weren't you? Um, when you had your own land, wasn't it yours? Yes, it was yours. And uh, when you said you'd give so much, so much, but they didn't. They cheated God." That was not tithing. That was giving an offering, like you said. Correct. And they dropped dead because they lied. Because they lied. They came and said, we sold the land for this much, and that's not the price they sold it for. So they lied. Lying to God is never a good thing. Okay, Psalm 144. Let's see what this read is. Tie this to the temple priest. It's actually to the Levites first and then from the Levites to the priest. That is correct. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought Mene and Gad would be trouble. Okay. Psalm 144, verse 9. I promise you, though, if you go and listen to the teaching, it's not too long on tithing. I cover absolutely every verse and all the history and when things changed and how they changed and why. Psalm 144.9. 
I will sing a new song to you, O God. On the harp at ten strings, I will sing praises to you. We're still talking about the new song. We find it again in Psalm 149, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and sing his praise in the assembly of the saints. That assembly of the saints is in Revelation 5, 9. But the main point is God loves it when we sing praises to his name. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Anybody knows what a Selah is? That's Petra. So it's talking about where the Jewish people have fled during the tribulation period. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. In other words, let the whole world know what God has done for you to protect you at Petra from the presence of the false Messiah. Sing to the world and let him know. That's enough on singing. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 15. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. Again, this is the servants versus you. The you, those that are not the servants, those that are going to fall under God's wrath, shall leave your name as a curse for my chosen. Which means you'll be saying, May you be like so-and-so if you break your word, if you break your vow, etc. For the Lord God will slay you. We were talking earlier, does it mean death? Yeah, it can. And call his servants by another name. Does God promise a new name to his servants? He absolutely does. When it says here in verse 15, you shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, that word chosen is the same word as the elect. They're interchangeable. It's the same root word. The word is bachir. B-A-C-H-I-R. Bachir. We see it in Isaiah 45 verse 4. Isaiah 45 verse 4. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect. My elect, my chosen. It means the same thing. I've even called you by your name. I have named you though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. Boy, that's powerful stuff there. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew was originally written in Hebrew. All the early church fathers tell us that. I can give you a whole long list if you need them. 
Matthew 24, verses 22 to 24, talk about God's elect, God's chosen people, means the same thing. Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. Of course, Matthew 24 describes the tribulation period and how awful it's going to be. Then in verse 22 it says, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Does it mean the days will be shortened in number of hours? No. Does it mean less daylight? It does, in a way. Because remember, the sun is so bright, it is burning boils on people's skin. It is so hot. So God will lessen the daylight hours. But it, what it primarily means is it will not go on forever. God gave it a specific period of time, the tribulation period. He gives it to us as seven years, but he also gives us it to us in months and in days. So we know it is seven 360-day years. But our years today are not 360 days. They're 365 and a quarter. Does that mean God's going to change the axis of the earth? Yes, it does. Are the scientists telling us that the poles are changing and our axis is moving? Yes, they do. Scientists will tell you that they can trace time and stars and, and planetary motions back until the time of Hezekiah. And that from there on back, it doesn't work anymore. What did Hezekiah ask God? To make the shadow of the sun go backwards. He changed the rotation of the earth. And that lengthened the years from 360 days to 365 and a quarter. What does Isaiah tell us? That in the tribulation period, the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. The rotation is going to be changed back to what it was. You think that's going to cause earthquakes and cataclysms? You bet it will. Matthew 24, verse 31. Matthew 24, verse 31. At the end of the tribulation period, and he will send his angels with the sound, what kind of a sound? Great sound of a trumpet. There are three trumpets in scripture that have names. The first trumpet, the last trumpet, and the shofar hagadol, the great trumpet. When does the shofar hagadol, the great trumpet, sound? On Yom Kippur. On what day does the tribulation period end? On Yom Kippur. He will send his angels with the sound of a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the four winds... From one end of heaven to the other is simply giving us the four points of the compass. That all those who got saved during the tribulation period are going to get drawn back to Jerusalem. That's going to be soon. Go to Colossians 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 
It gives us the characteristics of the elect of God. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. That word holy is what in Greek? Hagios, which means saints. What is holy in Hebrew? Holy Hebrew is kadosh. Yeah, you knew that. <laughs> yeah. But the first characteristic of the elect of God is that they are holy, which means set apart to God. And beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Messiah forgave you, so you also must do. What does the scripture say? If you won't forgive others, God won't forgive you either. Is that an incentive to forgive? You bet it is. Back to Isaiah 65. Back to Isaiah 65. Still in verse 15. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. That's what we were looking at a few minutes ago. What, is the, what does it mean to be chosen? To be the elect of God. For the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. Now I want to look at that another name. Keep your finger here. Go to Jeremiah chapter 23. When Messiah returns, he will be called by a new name. We learn that in Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 6. We may as well start in 5. For context. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. When days is plural, that means it starts before the day of the Lord. Usually back at the time of the first coming of Messiah. And that's exactly what it means here. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. That's the birth of Messiah 2,000 years ago. A king shall reign and prosper. That's a little bit in the future to now. So we've got 2,000 years plus in this one verse. Kings shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days when he's reigning, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. And this is the name by which he will be called Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. Isn't that an odd name to call him? The Lord our righteousness? It recognizes two things, that he is the Lord, and without him, our righteousness would be nothing. And then turn to chapter 33 of Jeremiah. We're going to see that name again, but in a little different context. Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 15.
in those days, yep, that started with the birth of Messiah 2,000 years ago, but then it says, and at that time. Whenever you see the phrase, at that time, it's referring to what? The tribulation. I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Does he do that in tribulation period? Does he pour out his wrath and judgment? In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called. What is she? Jerusalem will be called the Lord our righteousness. Which means she took on the name of her bridegroom. Who takes on the name of the bridegroom? The bride. So it's just like Isaiah chapter 4 which describes Israel as being the bride of Messiah. A lot of Christian pastors don't like that. But that's what it says. Go to Revelation 2. Back to the seven letters to the seven churches. <clears throat> Revelation 2.17 refers to that new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. That's 1 John 5, verses 1 to 5. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. What hidden manna is that? The hidden manna is in the Ark of the Covenant. Is there going to be an Ark of the Covenant in the kingdom? You bet there will be. And I'll give him a white stone. Not guilty. That's exactly right. If you were at the Sanhedrin holding a trial like the trial of Messiah, to show your verdict, you don't stand up and go, I, yay, nay, you hold up a stone, either black or white. Black guilty, white not guilty. So this white stone means God has declared you not guilty. How many of you want a white stone? Yeah. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Stop sending me emails asking me what's on the stone. <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. Revelation 3 verse 12. He who overcomes. Oh, how many times do we see that in Revelation 2 and 3? He overcomes. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Since we keep seeing he who overcomes, let's go back and look at that. In 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. It emphasizes Dwayne. that salvation is by faith. Yes, Susie Q. So sorry, whenever we speak there of that new name, and I know we had mentioned before that Adonai Zedekinu, this new name, is it actually, are we thinking it's a name? Is it his character? We will have to wait and see, won't we? But you're right, a name is more than just what you're called. It describes your character. So it's going to be a name that reflects the character that we have as being washed clean in the 
blood of Messiah. Thanks. Ah, okay, Edmund, that's a good point. When I describe holy, I keep talking about being set apart too, but he said, don't forget, it also means to be set apart from. Set apart from the things of the world to the things of God. That's a good point, Edmund. Thank you. Where do we go in 1 Thessalonians? Going to 1 John 5. Thank you. I just hadn't gotten that far. Right. 1 John 5. What does it mean to be an overcomer? Since Revelation 2 and 3 keeps using that phrase. Let the Bible define the Bible. The answer is in 1 John chapter 5. Verse 1, whoever believes that Yeshua is the Messiah is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Yeshua is the Son of God? How can they mix faith and keeping commandments in one definition? Because if you have faith in God, you will keep his commandments. That's exactly right. When it comes to judgment day, will God judge you by your words? Well, you said you had faith. Or is he judged by your works? What did your life show? I'm sure nobody would ever claim to be something they're not, right? That would be a hypocrite. And yeah, we read about hypocrites in the scriptures. But however, let's go back to Isaiah 65 verse 16. So that he who blesses himself in the earth he shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my eyes. In other words, God's servants will have changed their very nature. No longer will they bless themselves by the earth, but they will bless themselves in the God of truth. What is truth? Psalm 119, verse 142. Torah is truth. Psalm 119, verse 142. What is all the emphasis these days in climate change and protecting the environment and protecting Mother Earth? What do they mean by Mother Earth? Talking about Gaia. They consider the earth a pagan goddess. That she is the source of all blessings. She gives us the food. She gives us the good weather. She gives us the rain. But this says they're going to have turned away from all that. And turned to the true and living God. And they will bless themselves in the God of truth. And shall swear by the God of truth. Sure, they want to pretend the Bible doesn't exist and find a different explanation for whatever the, the Bible says. Correct. Truth. 
Um, in verse 16, what is that word truth in Hebrew? What's that? Right, it's not the bizarre, that's the gospel. This word is amen. This word truth is amen. That's the Hebrew word. Swear by the God of truth. Amen means I believe that God will do what God has said. So instead of putting faith in the earth and science and all those things, they will believe that God's going to do what God said he will do. Let's go back and look at Deuteronomy 27.15. Deuteronomy 27.15 Deuteronomy 27 verse 15 Half the people are on Mount Gerizim half are on Mount Ebal and they're yelling back and forth to each other in verse 15, it says, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman that sets it up in secret, and the people on the other mountain, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. It's true. We agree. God said it. We're going to do it because God means what he says, and God will judge sin. Therefore, we are going to be obedient. I've heard it said, let it be so. But that simply means I'm agreeing with God. Let God do what God said he would do. Amen. Psalm 41. And I realize God doesn't need my approval of his actions, but he still likes to have it. Psalm 41, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. What's this verse trying to tell us? That God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And deal with it. That's right. That I agree that God's going to do exactly what God said he was going to do. And if God said he's going to throw me in the lake of fire, he's going to throw me in the lake of fire. But he also told me how I can avoid that. Right. Psalm 72, verse 19. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So David is praying that God's name would be blessed and, and made holy and glorified forever and ever. That eventually the entire earth and all its population would join in with worshiping the true and living God. Psalm 89. Whenever you hear Psalm 89, I want you to think verse 34. That's not where we're going, but I want you to think it anyway. 
Psalm 89.34 says, My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. If the commandments have been abolished, done away with, etc., then God lied. Can God lie? He cannot. Who can lie? People. This one in particular is speaking about his covenant with David, but applies as well to all the covenants. Because he will not alter a single word that has gone out of his lips. Psalm 89.52 is where we're going. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Which means it's going to be. You can like it or you cannot like it. But you cannot change it. The Lord will be blessed forever and ever. And let's go back to Genesis 15 verse 6. To bring the point home. Genesis 15 verse 6. Says, and he believed in the Lord, he being Abraham, before God changed his name. And he accounted him for righteousness. That word believed is the Hebrew verb he-amin, from which we get the word amen. So God said, I'm going to do this. And Abraham said, amen. I believe it. You said it. I believe it. That's it. It's settled. And God accounted him for righteousness. Why? Because if you have that kind of faith in the Lord, how are you going to walk? Going to walk in obedience. Prove it. Give me a scripture. Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. Speaking to Isaac in verses 4 and 5, the Lord himself says, Waiting for the pages to stop turning. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I'll give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, that's Messiah, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Yes, ma'am. So we're blessed because we're given, we're blessed by the opportunity that we've been given to be saved by Messiah Yeshua. Correct. Yep, when God sent his only begotten son, it was for you too. Is that not a blessing? Absolutely. Back to Isaiah, Yeshiyahu, the Lord is salvation. Chapter 65, we're up to verse 16. We may get through Isaiah today, but probably not. I got 13 minutes, let's hurry. Verse 16. We did that one. But I want to look at specifically that phrase, the God of truth. Which appears how many times in this verse? Twice. 
the God of truth appears twice. There's so many people today that call God a liar and they don't realize that's what they're doing. Every time somebody says, we can now eat pigs, the Bible says so, they're calling God a liar. Because if God said, not a single word that goes out of my mouth will be changed. And it's now okay with God to eat pigs, that means the commandment fell away. So let's look at the phrase, the God of truth. Go to Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Is God a God of truth or is God a liar? He's a God of truth. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. He is the rock. Not Dwayne Johnson. That's an entirely different rock. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth. And without injustice. Righteousness and up, righteous and upright is he. So all the, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, God is called a God of truth. And he is without injustice. Means that come judgment day, if he says, depart from me, I never knew you. That means he never knew you. Let's go to Psalm 31. Verse 5. And they won it for 40 years. Why didn't they all just repent and turn back and, and grasp God? Yeah. That was, uh, it was a lack of faith. God is like Santa Claus. He'll give me everything I want, and that's all I need from him is gimme, gimme, gimme. Well, that's stubbornness. Yeah, God doesn't work that way. That's not humility. If they had repented, they would not have died in the wilderness. So if any individual repented, I don't know if I would go that far because I wasn't there. But there's certainly no indication in the scripture that they truly came back to a faith in God. Well, doesn't it say that only two of that generation passed over the Jordan? It was Joshua and Caleb? Yes, it does. Everybody else, everybody else died. Even Moses. And I know Moses had repented. Mm-hmm. However, God told him, no. however, God said, you're still not going to go into the land. sin has consequences God had to show us that through Moses and yet will Moses be in heaven one day absolutely how do we know exactly look at the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 who's with them Moses and Elijah yeah yeah Psalm 31 verse 5 Into your hand I commit my spirit. This is David speaking. You have redeemed me, O Lord, the God of truth. David says, the Lord is a God of truth. 
course, we all know Psalm 119, verse 142, but we need to turn to it anyway because I wrote it in my notes. And this way you'll put it in your notes. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. Again, righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness. If God's righteousness changes over time, then it would not be an everlasting righteousness. This tells us God does not change. And that word law in verse 142 is, of course, Torah. And then in the same chapter, 119 verse 160, it tells us the entirety of your word is truth. So what portion that came out of God's mouth is really true? All of it. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Go to John in the New Testament. John 17. John chapter 17. I see two red numbers out there. Let me check them. Yep. I agree, Susie. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. And it says, your word is truth. So what portion of the words God spoke in the Old Testament are no longer true? If his word is truth, then nothing has changed. Gee, that makes me think of Matthew 4, 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. I chuckle sadly at a lot of commentaries I read on Matthew chapter 5. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 for a minute. Verses 17 to 19, we'll just read 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever touch, does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There are a lot of commentaries out there that say, well, this was true at the time he said it. He just didn't realize that in three and a half years he will be crucified, buried, and resurrected, and then this will no longer be true. He just wasn't smart enough to realize that it was only temporarily true. How many of you think that is true? Not to me either. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. We read verses 1 through 5, but now we need to add verse 6. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. We read in Psalm 119, verse 142, that the Torah is truth. We read in John 17, 17, that God's word is truth. And now in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, let's read. 
This is he, that's Messiah Yeshua, who came by water and blood, Yeshua the Messiah, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. If the Torah is truth, God's Word is truth, and the Holy Spirit is truth, then can they disagree with each other? No. So when people tell me, well, the Holy Spirit told me that that commandment no longer applies. The scripture also says test the spirit. The also says, test the because they're not all from God. You test it with the word. Finally, John 14, verse 6. Which I'm sure you guys could quote me. But just in case not, let's go look. John 14, verse 6. Yeshua said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So now hold up four fingers. The Torah is truth. The word of God is truth. The Holy Spirit is truth. Yeshua the Messiah is truth. Can they disagree with each other? They cannot. Too bad we don't have a fifth finger. The Apostle Paul is truth. Because. Yeah, I was reading in the Jewish Encyclopedia in Jerusalem, and it says Yeshua did not abolish the commandments. Paul did. Paul did not abolish the commandments. What they mean is this is what the Christians are teaching. Because they had looked even at the teachings of Messiah. And it was Pinchas Lapid who said so many years ago that he had taken a look at the New Testament and that Yeshua was the most Jewish of Jews of all the people he'd ever met. I wonder if the current temporary prime minister of Israel is descended since his last name is Lapid too. You never know. What's my time look like? Ooh, ooh, real short. Let's go back to Isaiah real quick. Why did I pull out my bookmark? Who knows? Isaiah 65, we're up to verse 17. For behold, which means shut up and listen. I create new heavens and a new earth. Is that going to happen? Is there going to be new heavens and new earth? Yes, there is. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Which simply means that the new will be so outstandingly beautiful, peaceful, and joyous that you won't want to remember what happened before. Let's look at Isaiah 66, verse 22. The new heavens and the new earth, how long do they last? Forever. For as the new heavens and new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. Who is the your? The your is Israel. So whenever you hear a pastor say, replacement theology, God's done with the Jews, he's replaced the Jews with the church, say, did you just call God a liar? Because what does... 
Isaiah 66, verse 22. Thank you. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So if the Sabbath has been abolished, then Isaiah is a false prophet. The new moon is how you time all the feasts and festivals. You have to know when the month starts to be able to count to when Passover is and unleavened bread. So it's a way of saying all the feasts and festivals. Oh, so the day of the new moon per se was not a, a day of celebration? It wasn't a Sabbath day or anything like that. It was just a day to note, hey, the new month has started. And there was a couple sacrifices that you did on the first day of the month that you didn't do any others. And it always required to have two witnesses to see the, the new moon. You're getting more away from Bible and into custom, but yes, that's the way it was done. Okay. Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter discusses the new heavens and the new earth. 85% of people who call themselves Christians in the world don't believe there will be a new heavens and a new earth because they're preterists. They say all prophecy has been fulfilled in the past, in the first century. That revelation is a book of history, not prophecy. Why, does this, why do they say that? Because it says bad things about the Catholic Church. Second ah, mm. <laughs> Peter chapter 3. Verse 13. Second Peter says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter believed that Isaiah 65, 17 and 66, 22 were talking about a literal new heavens and a new earth and in them righteousness will dwell which means what no more what lawlessness no more lawlessness revelation 21 yes sir. Time to get rid of those things. But if we don't get rid of those things, are we not part of the body? And I don't mean that. Ask the Lord on Judgment Day. But we don't do this. We don't do what? We can't cleanse ourselves. We can work at it. Yeah, I mean, we work at it, but isn't it the Lord that actually brings that? Yep, the Holy Spirit helps us to clean all those things out of our lives if we will allow it. What's that? And that's our faith. Yeah. One last verse. Actually, section of verses. That's Revelation 21. 
which begins in verse 1, which is probably all we have time to cover. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. So the scripture tells us in all those places that there is a new heaven and a new earth that is coming. And we will pick up next week, Lord willing, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 18.